Hello and welcome to the We Are Guernsey podcast, where we bring you interviews with leaders from global financial services, as well as news and developments from Guernsey's financial services sector. My name is Brandon Ashplant, and I am strategy and technical executive here at We Are Guernsey. For those not familiar with the island, it is a leading global finance centre. The success of the industry here is underpinned by economic substance, political stability, and asset security, committed to the cause of sustainable finance. Earlier this month, Guernsey hosted one of its annual flagship events, the Funds Forum in London. Titled Endless Opportunities, it explored the impact of sustainability and emerging technologies on the investment funds sector globally. I'm delighted to be continuing the conversation with James Sargent and James Bromley, both partners at Weil, private funds group. Uh, James Bromley has significant experience in the establishment and operation of private funds across major alternative investment strategies and has been recognised as a key lawyer by Legal 500 UK. James Sargent advises a range of private investment funds, managed accounts and co-investment platforms across multiple strategies and was recognised in Private Funds Management's 2017 edition of 30 Under 40. Uh, In this episode, we will be exploring some of the major trends in fundraising and the various impacts that the rise of climate finance is having. So without further ado, welcome both. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Ryder. So firstly, uh, let's just set the scene on the current situation we're in. Um, what do you see as some of the major trends in the European fundraising market currently? Well, we do, we do some investment uh, infrastructure work as well, so we do do some trains work as well. But the, the, trends, the trends that we're seeing, Brandon, I think, um, listen, if you've been asking us this question at the back end of last year, I think it would have been a number of years of, of really unprecedented fundraising activity um, pretty much across all sectors. Um, with, a, with a degree of concentration at the large cap end of the market. I think the first half of 2022 has, has continued in a similar vein, but I think there's a few, a few headwinds that have obviously appeared, both from a, a geopolitical point of view, but also from a, a fiscal and a macroeconomic point of view with rising interest rates and, and, and inflation. Um, what, what trends can we extrapolate from what we've seen over the last couple of years? I think there is... Uh, there's, there's been a, a huge wave of capital raised. I think it's been done on a much shorter time frame than it has been historically. We've seen funds return to market much more quickly than the traditional sort of three to five year cycle. We're looking at uh, people returning to market in sort of sub two years in some cases. Um, I think there's been a breakaway group at the very top end of the market who have, consider- have gone on to raise considerably more capital um, than they have done historically, certainly in percentage terms by way of the target sizes of those funds. And I think we've seen a, a move towards a, a GP favourable market in terms of, of some of the terms and, and, and products that are out there by way of, of, of fund uh, economics and things like that. I think that's led to a, a, a pressure, if you like, on, on limited partners. I think there's a, there's a lot of talk, and if you talk to any of the LPs out there in the European or the, or the global fundraising market, I think there is a real sense that there is a bandwidth constraint there. There's only so much they can do. There's only so much re-up work they can do. And I think the consequence of that is one of the trends that we've seen is it become increasingly difficult for those managers um, outside of those large cap funds or new entrants to the market to actually get the time and attention with LPs. Um, and so they've had to get a little bit more creative about how they go about fundraising and what they do in terms of incentivizing LPs to, to commit to their funds. I think we've also seen, and this certainly speaks to our practice here at Wild in London, um, a huge focus on real asset strategies, um, both in the real estate and infrastructure space, 
and you know a number of developments in terms of longer dated fund products the view and, and, and people looking at core and core plus strategies either in in very long long dated closed-ended products or in, in open-ended fund products um, with different and often divergent divergent economics around those and I think you know given the topic for today what well, you know probably the biggest trend across the fundraising market both in Europe and globally is the rise of sus the sustainability mega trend as, as people talk about it and the growth of, of ESG and impact strategies as standalone strategies different from from the classic uh, sectors that people have raised money in are different asset classes being impacted differently? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, so I'll, I'll take that question from the point of view of the sustainability trends that we're seeing, given the, the topic of today's discussion. I think while we focus on uh, four key asset classes, so we focus on private equity, infrastructure, real estate and credit. If I look across those, uh, those asset classes, we're certainly seeing some divergence in the impact that the sustainability megatrend, if we're going to call it that, uh, is having on those asset classes. Real assets, so infrastructure and real estate, are certainly being more heavily affected or more uh, obviously affected, perhaps. Um, most of those, uh, most of the trend at the moment is on uh, climate change mitigation, uh, reduction of emissions. And if we think about the, the types of assets and sectors that are the, the biggest polluters is the energy sector, is the transport sector, it's construction, it's uh, energy and efficiency in buildings. Therefore, the, 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 the focus is more of a natural fit within a real asset strategy that is looking at those, those assets anyway, um, and it's driving a huge focus amongst those that are infrastructure funds and real estate funds that we're working on uh, to invest in wind, solar, hydrogen, uh, biomass, building efficiency, uh, e-transport, these types of things. Um, so it's, a, it's at the forefront of, of those strategies for sure. I think the other driver uh, of it being perhaps more prevalent currently in, uh, in the real asset sector is certain of the types of investors that are attracted to, to, those, uh, to those sectors. Um, if we look across the European LP base, at least, um, a lot of the real asset strategies are inflation-linked, stable return, return strategies that is a natural fit for uh, pension funds and insurance companies. Those big European institutional investors are now very focused on uh, sustainability from a branding perspective and from a making uh, and from a being able to answer to their stakeholders that they're doing the right thing. Uh, and therefore, given that those are such a big part of that, the investor base of those funds, the drive from the LP base to make that front and center of the strategy is perhaps greater than it might be in uh, certain other asset classes where, for example, family offices, for example, are a bigger, are a bigger part, of the, uh, part of the investor base and perhaps not as, uh, uh, not as interested yet in sac not sacrificing, but considering uh, sustainability uh, objectives as equally important as financial returns. Um, so if we then move sort of past, past that, then we're into the other two asset classes that I mentioned that we focus on, private equity and private credit. There's certainly uh, an impact being seen in, the, in those strategies, but I think it's less... No <laughs> but I think it's less pervasive than across... Uh, it is across real assets. I think what you're seeing in, uh, in private equity and venture and credit is more... And there are certain niche strategies where sustainability and impact are very, very prevalent. So I think one, or, uh, take one example, food tech. Uh, it's it's a booming uh, it's a booming industry around 
know, replacement products for meat, et cetera. Um, that, will, that will grow. Uh, it will certainly grow as a result, I think, of the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation and global food shortage, et cetera. So that's going to be a, a trend that we see. Um, but beyond sort of the, the niche strategies that are very focused on impact and certain types of themes, um, I don't think you're seeing the yet the the embracing of the trends in all mainstream private equity and private credit strategies in the same way as you are in uh, in the real asset space. Mm. I think there's another point of that as well, and they take private equity is probably a good example of this. There's been a there's a historical bias towards ESG risk mitigation. Um, you know, uh, LPs have historically had a, a fairly good handle on and required a lot from their GPs um, in terms of ESG reporting and, and, and ensuring that they're not doing certain types of investments. We see that in historical excuse rights, et cetera. I think what you're starting to see is the emergence of a, of a group of, of, of GPs in the historical private equity space in particular, but also in other asset classes where they, they're moving up the curve, if you like, away from ESG risk mitigation into the ESG value creation opportunity, if you like. So they're seeing value in buying businesses that are themselves fundamentally sustainable and are playing into sustainability sub-trends in the particular area that that, that business or that portfolio company is active in. And I think you're starting to see that come back through. And it's, it's a little bit of a feedback loop and, and there's something we'll come on to later. But I think you're starting to see that as a, as a value creation tool, the recognition that you know, buying and selling portfolio companies with a product base that is itself sustainable does add value to a to a portfolio, um, and, and so I think you're seeing you're seeing that as well as uh, uh, in the way that it's impacting particularly private equity portfolio company investments. Okay, and I, and I guess the kind of obvious follow up question to that would be: Is sustainability becoming a standalone asset? in and of itself or is it a strategy within the traditional kind of big four of private equity infrastructure real estate and credit i think it's a really interesting question um i think the i was at a conference yesterday and, and you know to have a standalone impact focused conference would, would have been inconceivable five years ago um it would have been you know a a, a work stream or a, or a channel in the in a general conference where you would have had you know a relatively small amount of attendance from from mainstream gps and lps to have a whole conference around impact suggests that it is becoming you know a standalone area in its in its own right i think the i think actually the stage of the evolution of of the market for esg sustainability impact um, strategies is is still relatively nascent we've seen a huge acceleration and a huge focus in really the last 24 to 36 months um, around this and i think what you're starting to see is is the this idea that it's a homogenized sector, um, which is separate from any of the other ones. I, I don't think is 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 something that necessarily um, stands the test of actual actually how it's working in practice. I think what you are starting to see is an emergence around almost a move away from thematics to issues. I mean, James touched on this idea of climate change, or you know, as, as a as, as a as a particular area of focus. That is an issue. It's separate from the social and the governance angle of the of the sort of the ESG acronym, but it throws up a, a number of questions, and there are a number of sub strategies and way to access that particular issue. So it might be, you know, it might be hard assets. It might be um, ensuring and decarbonising uh, manufacturing processes. It might be green steel. It might be energy transition from historical coal-fired power stations. All, all within that sort of issue, the theme, if you want, about issue, if you like. But actually, what you're also seeing is you're seeing decarbonisation technology that historically would have been a VC 
investment actually moving up the step scale to be a, a, a commercialization question for an industrial private equity strategy. So I think it's I think it's got some way to go as, as, a, as a sector, as a space, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an idea. Does that mean it's going to become a standalone sector in its own right? I think only time will tell. Um, but I think it's touching almost all aspects of, of the fundraising market and all aspects of the investment strategies out there that, that, that managers are, are looking to deploy. Okay. And I know you touched on ESG there. I wonder if we should just explore that a little bit further because you know, when stakeholders discuss ESG, many generally focus on the E, I think it's fair to say. Um, and this was something that was actually discussed at our funds forum earlier this month. And, and Gillian Browning, director of the investment fiduciary and pension division at the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, uh, noted at the event that there is no clear and kind of overriding or cross-border accepted policy piece on this, if you like. Um, for Guernsey, it's generally true, but also I think in many ways something we are proud of. I think it's fair to say it, at a broader sustainable finance level, we recognise the need to follow the science and global policy in managing the, the climate crisis. Uh, we also monitor uh, our success in mitigating climate change through unleashing the huge sums of capital that we have domiciled, domiciled on the island into uh, areas focused on having a positive impact on the environment, such as forestry funds, uh, wind and solar farms, and regenerative farming schemes. However, I don't think there is a lack of awareness necessarily of S&G on the island. Uh, Guernsey has done a lot to support philanthropic and, and charitable endeavours, which often look to remedy a social ill, and the service providers on the island are, I think, is probably, it is fair to say, generally, uh, genuinely committed to good governance across the, the finance industry, more broadly speaking. For others where E is the kind of be-all, end-all, do you think there is, uh, or will there be change anytime soon? And if not, what can be done to give more credence to the S and the G part? I think it's a great question. Um, I think there's certainly a, a growing recognition of the importance of the S and, and the G. Uh, certainly, but I, I'm not sure I see there being a huge amount of change in the short term that takes the focus on the E off the top of the, the table for investors. I think that will stay the primary focus for, for a while at least. And I think there's a few reasons, uh, reasons for that. Firstly, I think focus on environmental issues is is so prevalent across society now it's it's a major theme not only obviously in the investment space but just in mainstream society it is it is the the, the issue on everyone's lips um as a result a it's at the forefront of everyone's mind the individuals that work in the organizations and the industry that we are in um but secondly i think as a result it makes it it easy for uh fund managers to demonstrate the value in focusing on environmental issues. It's very easy to show that if we don't focus on environmental issues and we invest, if this portfolio company doesn't show its environmental credentials, there is going to be damage to its brand. There is therefore going to be damage to its value, etc. Uh, it's quantifiable for people. Um, there's also, uh, I think, the aspect of a growing number of environmental laws, people can immediately point to, well, okay, if I don't comply with X, Y, and Z from an environmental perspective, I'm going to face financial penalties. Um, you can quantify the negative or the, or the positive impact on the value of your assets through an environmental lens in a way that's perhaps harder for social and governance issues at the moment, but we'll come on to, come on to that in a second. Um, 
I think secondly, and perhaps this is probably the, the biggest driver of the main focus on the environmental aspect of the ESG acronym rather than anything else, the investment opportunity set is just far bigger than the S and the G currently. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about as a, uh, as a uh, nation, for example, and as, uh, as Europe, we want to go through a green revolution. Well, a green revolution requires a huge amount of capital to be invested into uh, into projects that drive those changes into the things I mentioned before around solar power, wind power, hydrogen, biomass, a fundamental shift in how we how we produce energy, a fundamental shift in how we how we get around through e-charging of vehicles, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. These are massive capital intensive projects um, and the big institutional investors uh, obviously they are uh, they are focused on returns but they need to do that at investing large amounts of capital uh, and, and and there's more there's more uh, there's more opportunity to do that in environmental uh, assets than I think in assets focused on social and governance issues at the moment um, thirdly I think investors are all obviously interested in if I am investing in something and want to see uh, environmental improvements, I want to be able to see that in a demonstrable way. Well, if your strategy is focused on reducing carbon emissions, for example, that is measurable. It's measurable in a way that, uh, that certain social and governance uh, improvements are perhaps less measurable. Um, and those, those three things will mean it's at the top of the people's agendas for a while. That being said, I think, S and G are gaining more traction, um, and how to your question of how does that grow even further, and how do it, how does that move into uh, having the same level of focus of uh, of the E of the ESG and acronym currently? I think there's two things. Firstly, institutional investors need to see that there's an opportunity to deploy large amounts of cash. Now, for that to happen, there needs to be certain thematic drivers around uh, around investment opportunities. I think in the social sector, for example, I think one of the biggest drivers for that is going to be aging population. Uh, aging populations throwing up a huge amount of opportunities around healthcare investing, investing in uh, senior living facilities, care homes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's been around obviously for a, for a while. It's not. There's nothing new around that, but I think. It's a trend that's not going anywhere, uh, and uh, it's a trend that governments realise they need to plug the gap in the spending that they can't do through the private sector, uh, and as a result, uh, it requires large amounts of investment, and investors will, will flock to that. Um, on the other side of the coin, I think you need to be able to... Managers that are saying, look, we are focused on social and, gov and governance issues, you need to be able to show that there's value in doing that. I think there's a, there's a growing number of funds, especially in the US, but, uh, but also in, uh, in Europe, that are focused on making investments in portfolio companies with diverse boards and management teams, for example. Um, that's an interesting trend. And I think it, it obviously has huge amounts of, uh, uh, of, of value uh, in a social sense in doing so. But I think the, the proof will be if those funds in due course that are relatively new as a strategy, if those start to show that they are generating outsized returns compared to their peers who are not thinking about those things in the same way, or even uh, returns on the same level, I think you'll see institutional investors say, well, look, there's massive uh, proof in that being a positive strategy, not only for the greater societal good, but also from our financial returns uh, position. And once you get to that, once you are having that type of conversation, 
the cash flows uh, very quickly into uh, into the sector. So ultimately, institutional investors are uh, uh, at the end of the day mainly focused on uh, the financial returns that they can obtain from any investment they make. Mm. And when it comes to the closed-ended space and, and private equity more specifically, who is driving the move to impact-based investing? Is it LPs or GPs, or or is the move being driven from elsewhere, perhaps? I think it's probably a combination of of all three, really. I think to James's point, there's a there's a growing societal recognition that that there is a a need or a desire or, or the the possibility of having a private capital solution to a number of these big issues, um, which I think naturally tends towards GPs then looking to see whether that's a trend that they can play into, that there's a, an investable opportunity there. Then there's the, the presentation of that opportunity to an LP base. Um, I also think on the flip side, if you're looking at LPs, I think there is a there's a there's a group of very, very sophisticated, let's call them ESG impact leaders out there amongst some of the institutional investors. Um, you know, you think about some of the large Nordics, you think about some of the, the US LPs out there that have been looking at this and thinking about this uh, and developing their own internal uh, processes and methodologies for, for a good number of years now. That translates into ESG um, reporting requirements and side letters. It, 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 it generates excuse rights, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think you can look at one single tipping point and said, okay, GPs have suddenly decided that this is the way to go or LPs are requiring it. I think it's been, I think it's been quite a natural evolution over, over the last really probably decade, um, you know, right back to sort of coming out of the, uh, of the financial crash, sort of 2010-11, this, uh, this recognition that there was an opportunity set there which I think in recent years has accelerated away. I think what you're starting to see now, and it depends how cynical you are, right? I think there is a recognition that there is, there is a, there's an AUM play there, um, certainly for some managers who, who think that there is the ability to raise large pools of capital to go and deploy into strategies that are one standard deviation away from their, their flagship strategies. I think at the other end of the market, there are a number of very, very mission-orientated GPs that are emerging and being backed by a number of you know, equally mission-orientated LPs. Um, but I think it all comes back to this idea that you know, there are some big societal challenges uh, and on a global level um, that, that ultimately there is a private capital solution for. And I think hopefully the, the growth of this sector you know, is a recognition that there are there is a meeting of minds between GPs and LPs that, that, that something can be done in this space. And and what challenges on the horizon do you see kind of coming along in, in the future for sustainability and in impact-based strategies? Yeah, I, I think we've touched on a, on a number of them. I think from a uh, from a very basic level, the, the the biggest challenge is going to be making sure that, that those managers that are now pivoting to show a huge focus on sustainability issues and uh, integrating sustainability issues into their investment strategy, that they actually demonstrate that that drives value. Um, I mean, that's the, uh, the most basic level uh, going to be the biggest challenge for, for the sector. I think everyone believes that it will, um, but I think the the wholesale integration of uh, sustainability issues into people's strategies is relative is still relatively new and therefore the proof isn't probably quite there yet uh, and there will always be naysayers until we go through a few more years of the cycle so that people can actually show here look here are my numbers on a page that show that this is uh, th th this is worth focusing on but putting aside that I think probably some of the more interesting headwinds are uh, 
a political uh, at the moment. Um, I think an obvious one, Russia, Ukraine, um, I think quite clear in the long term that will ultimately accelerate the trend towards focus on renewable energy. I mean, there's clearly obviously a recognition within Europe and beyond that uh, Europe needs to wean itself off dependence on Russian gas and oil, etc. Uh, and there will be a massive focus on renewable energy to, to get there. But in the short term, energy security is bringing back onto the agenda discussions around refiring coal power stations, building new coal power stations. Are people going to be uh, investing more in nuclear energy, et cetera, et cetera? Things that perhaps people would say, especially, I mean, nuclear is always an interesting debate, but uh, uh, but coal, I think, is, is pretty widely accepted. It's not hugely positive for a green agenda. Um, but I don't think it's going to be phased out uh, on the discussions that we're seeing. People are more cautious about saying, well, we're absolutely not going to do that going forward because there is the balancing of energy security in the short term versus greening uh, the agenda in the long term. And then in addition to that, I think you've got a, a growing political agenda in the US that could, in some scenarios, look to challenge the uh, well, at the moment, it looks like a sort of one-way march towards everyone focusing more on uh, sustainable investments and, uh, and ensuring that that is factored into decision-making as much as financial returns. There's been increasing statements from US politicians uh, around how uh, certain of the public pension plans should not be considering anything else other than financial returns when making investment decisions, and that it's not uh, it's not in the interests of uh, quote unquote mom and pop investors to to do anything other than make sure you find the highest returning assets, irrespective of the uh, irrespective of the wider impact on society or the environment. So that is a that is going to be a challenge that I don't think will will go away anytime soon. Um, also, in the U.S., we've got some interesting cases of uh, I'll take Texas as a as an example. Texas has recently introduced a law uh, that basically says their government uh, investors uh, cannot invest in companies that boycott fossil fuels. Um, as a result, you've got a lot of the big Texas investors now looking at their GP relationships and going, well, look, I need to understand who has investment policies that restrict them from investing in coal and oil and gas, et cetera. Now, a lot of GPs have to have, to have included those restrictions in recent years. But I think if, uh, if there's, if this goes beyond Texas and there's other US states that are starting to do similar things, those GPs are going to start to think again about whether they really can afford to have that and have those type of investment restrictions in their, in their fund documentation. Because if it's taking the US public pension plans off their slate as potential investors, then that's a challenge for them. Um, it's a huge capital gap. I mean, there's, there's some interesting political headwinds to the, to the issues, um, but largely, I think, at the moment, there is such a, at least in Europe, there's such a focus on moving forward and moving sustainability up the agenda that I think these will be uh, obstacles that are uh, that are overcome, um, but I think they will be bumps in the road uh, as the as the asset class and the focus grows. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think James has gone very macro with that, and I, and I, and I agree with that. I think the the other challenge, if you bring it into the micro, to that you know, take the European space. I think one of the one of the challenges or one of the issues facing the industry is is really twofold. It's a it, it's, it, but it all comes back to the same question: is how do you measure impact? 
And then once you've got that, and if you have a, a sort of a market-wide harmonized view of how you go about calculating it, how do you then collect the data to actually feed that back in? And, and, and that's, that's challenging. You, you can have the aspiration of the strategy, you can have the aspiration of the, the impact goals that you're setting, but ultimately, a lot of the time that reporting is coming up from the portfolio. So it's about putting in place um, the systems and the methodologies to ensure that you're capturing that data correctly and then putting that data into a, you know, a, 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 a system or a, a, a benchmark that is easily understandable by those LPs that are looking to invest into it. And I think that's that's in the, on the micro sense, one of the, one of the sort of near-term challenges that the market's really having to grapple with. And you're, you're starting to see that with, the SFDR Article Nine funds that are out there, you know that that piece of, of regulation, piece of legislation is is very aspirational in what it's trying to do, but actually the implementation from a practical or an operational standpoint can is throwing up some challenges that we're talking to clients about sort of on a daily basis at the moment. Really interesting, really interesting points made there on on the macro side, from all the way from Russian Ukraine energy transition and and proper fiduciary duty around, you know, proper uh, proper uh, managing of pension schemes and so forth, and then also on the micro, more small scale reporting side. I wonder if we just zoom in even more more micro, if you like, um, to your clients' uh, firms. Are you seeing a change to people's roles within your clients' organisations with regards to the, uh, the the greater focus now placed on sustainability? I think absolutely. I think it, I think it permeates almost all roles within most of our fund manager clients' organisations now. Um, take a sort of selection of certain of the roles, the investment professionals and asset managers. Uh, uh, now, a key part, one of the key elements of uh, their considerations when making investment decisions is: Do these investments meet our overall sustainability goals? What are the ESG risks in this uh, in making this investment? How do we implement business plans to uh, drive positive change from an ESG perspective in our portfolio companies? Um, something that if you Went back, uh, went back sort of beyond five years ago, it wouldn't have been uh, on the high up on anybody's list when having these discussions around investment decision making. But now it's something that all investment professionals are having to having to get their heads around and make sure is at the forefront of their minds when uh, when doing their day job. Um, in the same way, investor relations personnel, people involved in capital raising, they're facing a raft of questions from LPs around, okay, what do you as an organization uh, do on ESG? How is that integrated into your investment strategy? How are you going to report that to me? Those, uh, the individuals involved in that need to be very well prepared to answer those questions. Um, it is sort of, uh, it is high up on the list of questions that we are finding LPs ask uh, when GPs are on the fundraising trail, and if you don't have a good story to uh, to how that uh, is dealt with in your organisation, you're immediately on the back foot. Uh, and then, if we go even further, sort of into the back office, and you talk about the finance team, the reporting team, legal teams, etc., then getting having to get their head around how do we report to our investors on ESG issues? How do we understand how environmental and sustainability legislation is impacting our business, impacting our assets, impacting uh, how we run our funds, etc.? Um, so there's there's aspects that are important to, to everyone's role, I think, now. Um, 
But as, and as a result, what you're also seeing a lot of now, and especially are the, the bigger fund managers that we work for, there's an increasing number of head of sustainability or director of ESG type roles that are, that are emerging, which I think is it's hugely important because think about what I've just said about how this is integrated into almost everyone's role. You need someone sitting above all of that to go, how are we making sure this is applied on a consistent basis across the organization? How do I actually ensure that everyone is moving in the same direction. That's increasingly, how, how do I make sure that we are putting out a uniform message to the market and our LP base on how we deal with these issues? That can't be, can't sort of fall on the, just a collection of individuals doing their own specific bits of the organization. There has to be a single point of contact to create that consistency. And that's why you're seeing that the growth of this uh, ES, specific ESG focused roles, as well as the growing recognition of it being important to the traditional roles within, the, the, within our clients' organizations as well. Okay. And, and I guess when it comes to sort of the investment decision-making side and, and the, the role of the manager. Um, when it comes to alternative markets, I guess there's always kind of the points around uh, energy transition, as you've touched on previously, and and making the right investment decisions morally above and beyond sustainability and, and in, to include social and governance and so forth. But are there any particular sectors that are now pretty much, you know, no-go as a result of increased investor focus on, on ESG? I think if you'd asked us that question a couple of years ago, we would have said, absolutely. I think uh, investing in weapons, for example, to give a silly example, has, has been off people's agenda for, for a long time. Uh, increasingly investing in coal has been off, uh, off people's agenda. But going back to the point I made on the, on the Russia-Ukraine situation, both of those things are now not now back on people's agenda to invest in, but it's not an immediate no. There's, uh, there's interesting questions around, well, okay, is can certain defense investments be a good social investment in the age of uh, uh, increased uh, global instability? Uh, do we need to be thinking about investing in coal for the reasons I mentioned earlier about uh, energy security in the short term? Um, so I think that that has brought into focus, uh, I think for a lot of GPs and LPs, or maybe it's not actually sensible for us to be as rigid in saying you can't invest in this, you can't invest in that. Beyond that, I think there's also a growing recognition that saying, having red lines of we won't invest in this, we won't invest in that, don't necessarily achieve the aims that you are trying to uh, trying to achieve. Um, ultimately, certain of, uh, a number of the most polluting industries are going to be around for a while. So suddenly saying, okay, I'm a LP investing in alternatives. I'm going to tell you, GP, not to. You cannot invest in those in those sectors. Does that actually achieve the aim in a way that, whereas if you said, okay, you can invest in those, but you can only invest in those if your plan and your agenda when investing in those assets is to significantly reduce carbon emissions, increase their uh, increase their sort of sustainability credentials. And I think we're seeing a number of, uh, of our clients make that case to, uh, to their investor base that actually there's no no-go area for us. We will invest in everything, but we will be, one of our key criteria will be, can we improve the sustainability performance of, the, of this investment? Can we reduce the carbon emissions? Can we, uh, can we make positive change uh, within the investment? If we can, even if it's a dirt, quote unquote, dirty asset at the moment, we may still do it.
That's fascinating because I guess when it's on the books, it's it is, you know, you've got dirt on the books you like. But um, if you if you go the other way and kind of get rid of them and flog them off, then I guess the book looks green. But ultimately, you're not doing a, a moral good for the for the wider global community, if you like, because that you're just shoving the issue off off the books and on someone else's. So um, that's an interesting point. Fascinating. Um, and I guess that leads into my next question, in a sense, because, you know, there's always been a performance fee for fund managers and GPs who manage to generate significant ROI in in financial and, and economic terms. But I wonder, are you starting to see GPs being economically incentivized to achieve certain sustainability or social goals? Uh, yeah, listen, I mean, I think that's the nub of the question, right? Do you do you walk the walk as well as talk the talk? Um, there's a there's a soundbite, there's, there was a, say I was at a conference uh, yesterday, there's a soundbite that came out of that conference, which is what gets measured gets done, what gets done gets reported, what gets reported gets rewarded, what gets rewarded gets repeated. So you end up with this virtuous circle of, of, of improvement. And I think that's probably correct. I think that there is... I don't think it's a simple yes, no answer, though. I think there are a range of, of participants out there, certainly in the GP uh, field and also the, 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 the LP field, the investor, the investor market out there, who have different approaches to this. I think there are those at one end of the market, and let's call them the Article 6 or, or some of the lower-end Article 8 type funds, where they see ESG value creation tools as a way to drive value, but it's not an impact strategy per se. Um, where they're being judged by the impact they see, they see that sustainability megatrend. They see the sustainability, um, the sustainability of their underlying portfolio companies' products as a way to drive value, which ultimately goes to that return on, on financial investment. And then I think you end up with those who, and it's an increasingly growing number of managers who are saying, we are going to produce a financial return, but we're also going to generate a measurable impact, and we want to be judged on both. Um, I think where the market is at the moment, notwithstanding the fact that it is moving, you know, almost on a course by course basis, the, the general approach in the market to impact linked performance is generally a, generally a downward ratchet. So you have classic 20% carried interest in a private equity setting, which will be reduced by a failure to meet certain impact objectives. There are talks, we are talking to a number of clients who are looking at fund products at the moment, and there are a number of people in the, in the market generally who are looking at, let's call it premium fees for achieving impact over and above the standard financial return uh, fee that they would get for, for, perform, for performing above the target that they've set themselves. I think there's an even smaller set of managers out there where there is no direct linkage to performance. And this is where you get into this this sort of debate around are you are you a, an investment manager or are you sort of on the cusp of being a philanthropic investor or, or, or foundation or, or what have you and that's a that's a very very small subset but i think you also if you look up to the lp community i think there are a number of when we talk about being mission orientated and, and people who have got a, a particular view of, of of what they need to be doing i think if you look at the, some of the, the corporates themselves um, certainly in the Nordics, certainly in um, the, the US, I think there is an allocation that is, if you like, impact first. So they're looking at the impact metrics over and above the financial return. But I think they're a pretty small subset. The much larger group is the group that James touched on before in, in terms of the US pension plans and a number of other, let's call them financial, financially driven investors who want to have an impact as well. And I think that's the real Rubicon is, is can you can you show that you're generating outperformance versus 
uh, the public markets or alternatives, even if it's in your peer group, and also have an impact at the same time. And I don't think anyone has, has alighted on the right model for that. That's why you see a number of different metrics, a number of different fee mechanics out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the short answer to, to the actual question is, if you are if you are stating yourself as being an impact-based investor, then you are going to be judged on, on the impact that you're having. And that will directly impact, if you'll pardon the pun, the cash in your pocket as a, as a manager if you perform or don't. Okay, so just a final question then. Uh, you may know that Guernsey was the first jurisdiction in the world to launch a green fund kite mark. Uh, Guernsey's regulator, the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, introduced the Guernsey Green Fund in 2018, and it isn't currently valued at more than £4.4 billion. Uh, the commission recently launched a consultation paper on launching a world's first natural capital fund kite mark. This will likely support the Green Fund, which focuses on carbon mitigation more so, while the Natural Capital Fund will focus on investing in biodiversity and natural positive investments. Uh, we in Guernsey see our regulator is acting uh, not necessarily ahead of the curve, but definitely being aware of the trends that are out there, globally speaking. Uh, but generally speaking, when it comes to sustainability and global regulators being behind or ahead of or, or kind of on the peak of the curve, where do you see them generally sitting? Uh, it's, it's a rare thing for a funds lawyer to say. I have a degree of sympathy for the regulators at the moment in this space. Um, I think it's I think it's a major challenge. Um, if you take a step back, you know, regulators typically look to regulate out of the market bad behaviour that is potentially going to have negative impacts on investors or market participants. I think the challenge that they face here is is actually is is different. Right, there is a clear public policy initiative towards things in the sustainable, things in the climate space being societal goods, as we've touched on already. So it's not about legislating or regulating activity that is ultimately designed to address problem. The, the challenge they face is how do you bring transparency and harmonization to a, a globally diverse problem and a globally diverse participant group? And, and I think that's really challenging. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's something that, that anybody has particularly hit upon correctly amongst the global regulators out there. Um, and, and it's it's if you like, it's I mean. I talk about it as the mini disc problem for older generations. It's the Betamax problem. You bring out something that's something that seems to be fit for purpose at this point in time, but the market is evolving so quickly that it becomes effectively redundant by the time it's actually being implemented. And so that's the concern. And I think SFDR, if you take a European sort of viewpoint on this, SFDR goes a long way to trying to provide some form of guardrails around concerns that, that there was greenwashing going on in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Is it, is it perfect? No, it's not, because it's evolving. It, 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 it imposes obligations on managers where, the, as we touched on earlier, the data collection and reporting isn't quite there. So again, it's an effort by a regulator to try and impose some degree of harmonization and some degree of transparency that wasn't otherwise there. And you know, that's then a question, and it's a much bigger question when you go to the global market, and can global regulators generally get to a harmonized position? Not yet, but I think hopefully there's, there's sort of there are initiatives, you know, out there at the moment that are working towards that. And frankly speaking, it should only work to the good of the industry if, if as we all do think, this is the right way to be going to solve some of these major societal challenges. Okay. Well, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Pleasure. Man.
Uh, it's been a fascinating chat uh, and a great insight into how you perceive some of the macro, but also some of the micro trends you're seeing in the sustainability space um, when it comes to global fundraising. Um, thanks also to you for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, we have a library of interviews and panel discussions on the We Are Guernsey podcast channel. You can check them out by searching for We Are Guernsey on your preferred podcast platform. To find out more about Guernsey's success in sustainability and sustainable finance, tune into our system channel the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast. To find out more about Guernsey and the island and its offering in both the open and closed-ended funds space, check out weareguernsey.com. We also have links to both James's LinkedIn profiles in our show notes, uh, along with links to Wile um, too, so check these out to hear more from them. Thank you for listening, and for now, it's goodbye from Guernsey.